it's been curious to me the more I've read of atheists and agnostic thinkers that often if you if you really pursue their lines of thinking they don't believe in human beings any more than they believe in God. When you say it out loud, all of a sudden it's like, oh, <laughs> that doesn't speak as well as it writes. Because if we're only going in to answer people's questions and not to, to listen to their story, we're not actually going to be meeting them where they most need to be met. Now, conversely, if we only listen to their story and don't actually answer their questions, we're not helping them either. At the end of the day, the doctor had to prescribe uh, medication to help with this, not just to sort of feel around for the pain and empathise. My name is Rebecca McLaughlin, and I'm joined by my co-host, Kyle Worley. How's it going, Kyle? Good morning. I just, oh my goodness, I just realized my headphones have been severely tangled up in my chair. So I don't even know how such a thing was possible, but uh, I'm going to extricate myself from this real quickly. I think there's some sort of metaphor in here. <laughs> there's no doubt about that. <laughs> about how things can go so horribly wrong mm, when we yes. thought we were all set up. Um, oh, yeah. Kyle, I think one of the favorite things I've ever heard you talk about, mm -hmm. and I think you talked about it under some pressure from your friends, Jen yes. Wilkin and JT English, Yes, was the original <laughs> strapline that you had proposed for your church plant. So I think, um, I think our hearers need Wait, to... Wait, what's, what's a strapline? Isn't that what it's called? Like a one-sentence summary of the article... Oh, I, I mean, I, I, I've heard it called a tagline, but I've never heard tagline. a strap, a strapline though. Is that a tagline? I don't know. Uh, Maybe that's some sort of um, clothing related uh, well, thing. Well, I did. Yeah, I didn't know if I was getting like a, a one of your the Britishisms. You know, I often play things off as that when they may just be <laughs> my strangeness. <laughs> you're like, oh yes. Yeah, so, <laughs> you're like, you've never heard that before. <laughs> yeah, it's something we say down my way. Right. Right. Um, right. Uh huh. Kyle, what's the name of the church that you pastor? I pastor a church called Mosaic Mosaic Church, and yes, uh, when we were planting Mosaic Church, uh, it's not uncommon for you to sit with like some creatives and help. You know, they wanted to design your logo, and and as part of that, they were like, "Hey, it'd be good to have like a tagline." And or I was totally, line. or a strap line, yes, as they say, across the pond, <laughs> uh, strap line, tag line. Uh, and uh, I was totally unprepared for that, but they were like, yeah, just start, you know, just get a piece of paper, start writing down, you know, what you want Mosaic to be characterized by. And I was like, okay, I think I can do that. Uh, and so I took a legal pad and just took a day and was like, okay, Mosaic Church, you know. Uh, unified in Christ, uh, Mosaic Church, you know, making disciples uh, together and apart. I mean, like, I just wrote down everything I could think about. And in the middle of that list, I found one that I was like, wow, that's the one. This is it. The gold is here. This is the tagline. I mean, it's, I'm like, I'm looking at it on paper. I've written it down and I'm like, this perfectly captures what we're going for. And we had a home group meeting that night uh, for the home group that I was in, the community group I was in at the time. This is probably this is you know almost a solid year before we were going to launch Mosaic, and so I'm with a group of people I've known for years, and so I take you know five or six of the top ones that I have uh, on my list here, and I'm like I'm going to workshop them with these people tonight, mm -hmm. all all of whom are going to be part of our launch team for Mosaic, and so I bury my favorite one in the middle. Good strategy. 
because I don't want I don't want to spoil it. You know, I don't want it to be like the fine. Like I I don't want to like uh, spoil their their opinion. You know, if I lead with yeah. it, if I end mm-hmm. with it, they might think like, oh yeah, that's mm-hmm. the one he really wants. So I'm reading them off. You know, I hit the first couple of ones, and then I get to my favorite one. And I haven't said it out loud yet. I've only written it down. I'm now in a group, and I say, Mosaic Church, broken, but whole. And the whole, and like, like immediately the room is like looking at me like, wait, what? And somebody goes, did you just say broken, but whole? And I was like, I did. Actually, I haven't said it out loud yet. Uh, I just had written it down. And, and when you I write have. it, when you write it down, mm-hmm. broken, so comma, good. but whole, mm-hmm. it looks perfectly fine. Mm-hmm. Be- mm-hmm. Maybe even beautiful. But it when you be. say it out loud, <laughs> when you say it out loud, all of a sudden it's like, oh, that so is not that doesn't speak as well as it writes. Uh, so if, yes. If any of you church planters out there would like Kyle to be a consultant in your process, mm. um I recommend you don't ask him. That's <laughs> all I can say. Like, that, let this be your cautionary tale. <laughs> honestly, though, it's hilarious because this story has circulated a little bit. I was with a group of church planners in North Carolina, mm-hmm. a, a, a state I do not live in and have done no ministry in. And there's a group of church planners, and I'm there like for a training thing, and we're all kind of hanging out after the training. And somebody tells, uh, starts telling a story. They're like, "Yeah, you know, I heard about this church planner in Texas, and, <laughs> and tells this tells this story." Oh. And I go after he tells the story, he's like, "Isn't that wild?" I was like, "It is wild. That's me." <laughs> I'm that idiot church planner who thought that was going to be a a good tagline for a church. Oh, so it was uh it's it's been out there. It's made it it's yeah, made the rounds. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, let's let's give it its um its moment in the sun in a non-comic way. Just for a second. Okay. Let's leave aside okay. the mm-hmm. very unfortunate double entendre. Wow. Nobody's ever why, invited me into this, so thank why you. Why did why did you think that presenting your church as something that was broken and yet also whole mm-hmm. was mm-hmm. going to be a, a helpful way to conceive of the mission of your church. How does that help us think about our present moment? Well, I mean, I, it's one of the reasons why we picked the name mosaic at all, because what is a mosaic but bits and pieces and fragments that really, if you just scatter them about, they don't really look like they belong together. Mm. They, they all look like just broken shards, just yeah. pieces, you know, fragments, not, there's nothing that's whole or unified about them, but in the hands of a master artist, those Mm. broken fragments can be assembled into something that really is beautiful and that could not be what it is apart from all of these small pieces Mm. coming together. Mm -hmm. And I think that really is the Bible's picture of what God's family in Christ looks like, both at a Mm -hmm. universal and global level, I mean, global and historic level, and also at the very least aspirationally at every local uh, instance uh, or expression Mm -hmm. of God's family in the church. So that's why, that's why we felt like something like that uh, was a good picture uh, Mm -hmm. was because it's very easy for us to think, that the church should really, you know, I think that and maybe this is a Southern thing. I don't know. Mm. Maybe, maybe it's not, but I do think that like there is. Like overcooking green beans. 
Oh, gosh. Wow. Coming in hot today <laughs> with the overcooking green beans. Okay. I didn't. I didn't know that that was a part of our problems. It's a thing. <laughs> we got a lot of problems down here in the South. Carry on, brother. <laughs> overcooking green beans wasn't even in my top 100, but um, I, I wonder, it, it could be, but maybe it's not. Uh, it could be a Global West thing. It could just be this is kind of what happens as a church grows. But I think there is a temptation for people to view the church or any local church as a place where it's like, okay, we've got every – like the people that are there have everything together. Right. And yep. they can kind of stand on their own. And until I'm ready to be just a – I don't know, like a, a – pillar of the community. Exactly. The church is not really the best home for me. Mm, mm. But that's – I mean, that's pretty – you'd have to, you know, basically misread the entirety of the New Testament, right? Uh, to come to that conclusion, yeah, yeah. How did so? People talk a lot at the moment about deconstruction. Mm-hmm. So, in some ways, the the opposite of the process you're describing there of these little shards, these little set of broken pottery pieces being brought together. People talk a lot about deconstructing their faith, which is is often some mixture of their beliefs that they may have been raised with and their sense of connection to church, mm-hmm. actually. Like often what's being deconstructed is is also their, their church experience. Um, h- how can we reconcile like the, the truly disappointing pieces, I guess, of, of experience that we might have in church life um, and even the ways in which many of us who were brought up in the church may have been fed like non-biblical ideas or or ways of thinking that have kind of got mixed in, almost baked into the cake of faith Mm -hmm. for many. How can we think in good ways about deconstruction um, where we're, um, you know, trying to identify those pieces and how how can we think in in poor ways where we are maybe throwing babies out with bathwater? Man, there's like 20 good questions there, Rebecca. And I want to hear your thoughts on this uh, because, uh, you know, I think you've, I know through reading your writing, you've given this a considerable amount of thought. You've at least given the, the presenting issues, some of the greatest kind of reasons that push people mm. into, we can say deconstruction broadly here. You've given a lot of thought to just trying to provide gracious, wise responses to that. So I, I, I want, I want to talk about, it. I think if we could just kind of go, okay, what is, where's it coming from? When we use the word, what are we using in reference to? I, I think that, we find ourselves at this moment because there has been kind of two approaches to thinking through critical questions. Mm-hmm. Um, there has been, we need to condemn critical questions about the Christian faith. Mm. Basically, yep. we should rule them out of hand from the jump. Yep. That's kind of one lane. Uh, and, and that's probably most associated with uh, expressions. I'm not saying every expression. I'm just saying some expressions of what you might call kind of conservative Christianity or theologically right. conservative Christianity. Right. Anyone who's questioning is of the enemy. Yeah. Kind of all of a sudden, however legitimate the question might be, mm-hmm. we don't want to hear it. Yeah. Yeah. So that's like we got to condemn critical questions. The other path is like we have to celebrate a critical spirit. Like mm-hmm. we want to basically consecrate critique. Yeah. And this is kind of a hopeless critique. That's kind of what it is, where it's just like there's not really an interest in building. Mm. There's just really an interest 
in demolishing. Mm. And um, I think that the temptation is to say uh, questions, either critical questions about the Christian faith, either have to be condemned or they must be celebrated. We either have to view the person mm-hmm. asking it in the very worst possible light, yeah. meaning like we should we should only push back. We shouldn't give any air to the conversation, to the questions at all. That's one mm-hmm. approach. Or we should celebrate and consecrate these questions and basically just like go, yeah, I mean, this is, uh, it's a holy thing to doubt into perpetuity. We, you, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's kind of a part of faith is never really having confidence in anything. Uh, right. and it's like, oh, neither of those are functioning paths. Is that, am I, is yeah. it, do you, do you feel like that's accurate? I don't want to misrepresent how this conversation unfolds, but yeah, no, I think that, I think that's an, an important insight, um, into two different kind of postures that people mm. can have. Um, I think another way of of looking at it, which which complements that, I, I believe, is we can focus all of our attention on the sins of those folks out there, mm-hmm. and yeah. how that has got us to our present moment. Um, you know, culturally, in terms of how um, culture may be at odds with with some you know core Christian convictions. Or on the other hand, there are folks who want to um, center their their attention only on the sin inside the church and how that's brought us to where we are today. And it seems to me to actually understand where we are culturally today, we need to pay attention to both <laughs> both those pieces. Yeah. And and few people, or or at least that there are you know strong currents that are drawing people to either only focusing everything on. Um, how sin outside the church has brought us to this moment or only focusing their attention on how sin inside the church has brought us to this current moment. That probably maps somewhat onto your, um, you know, your, your division of folks there. How can we, so it's always easy to say, well, we would propose a third way, <laughs> right? right. <laughs> you know, and there's something can be kind of obnoxious and, and snooty about that, which I don't think <laughs> either of us really want to be. What is the most helpful way for us to approach, you know, people's real questions when it comes to, for example, you know, the history of of um, white Christian complicity and racism, or the history of Christians um, treating gay and lesbian folks with um, something very far removed from the love that Jesus calls us to show to actually everybody, regardless of, um, you know, whether whether they're a believer or not, whatever their situation is, that we should love even our enemies. Um, from the scriptures, like how how can we helpfully walk alongside folks who are asking real and important questions, you know, in light of of either of those kinds of issues, and and maybe questioning some of the things they were raised with in in church without falling into either of the the two ends of the spectrum that we were just discussing. Okay, let me let me try. I'll try something, and it's going to be incomplete. But let me give you like maybe a value that should guide us yep. and then maybe like an actual practical thing that I think can help in this. So mm-hmm. one that's more kind of at a posture level and one that's more at a, at a kind of practice level. Yep. I think at a posture level when people and, – and I get this question a lot right now. I mean I would say over the last few years as Knowing Faith's audience has grown, I, you might get emails like this too or DMs on social media. I would say – Seven out of 10 messages I get from people that are listening to resources that we're putting out 
Mm. are I've got a family member or I've got a friend or I have a roommate from college or a person in my small group or I myself am experiencing some doubt or deconstruction or skepticism or any of those things. Yep. And I don't really know what to do. Um, and what, I, what I've typically told them is, is three things. The first is when we think about how we can engage these conversations as Christians who aren't, ex- who aren't, who do not find themselves in a, a season or a desert of doubt or skepticism. And just for mm-hmm. the record, every Christian will at some point. You can call it deconstruction. You can call it a season of despair. You can call it the bogs of the sloughs of despair. I'm, I'm reading Pilgrim's Progress with my daughter right now. <laughs> you can call it any number of things, but like, and you don't have to call it deconstruction. But like every Christian goes through a time where they find themselves grappling with, is God really who he says he is? Has he done what he said he has done? And will he do what he says he's going to do? Mm. That's that's just a normative part of the Christian experience. And when we ask ourselves, how do we engage those questions when other people are going through them, people around us? I, I don't I don't mean this as a cop-out. I just mean, I think we got to look to Jesus and see how Jesus mm-hmm. talks with people. Like, I, I, I feel like when people hear that, they just think it's a simplistic thing. But Jesus is constantly engaging people's questions. Their skepticism, mm-hmm. their doubt, their hurts. I, it, there's basically not a page in your New Testament gospels where Jesus is not doing that. And how does he do it? Well, he doesn't water down truth, um, but he doesn't also uh, bark at people that are hurting. I mean, so it's like there's just a balance there of going like he's persistent, he moves towards them, he brings healing, he cares for them, he touches them physically, he speaks to them, he looks at them. Just think there's a demonstration there. And I think that's the posture piece. I think the practical piece is inviting people to explore doubt and skepticism from within the life of God's people. Mm-hmm. I think one of the temptations, and I, and I see it on social media, and I'm sure you do too, Rebecca, but I think one of the temptations for those who enter into a season of doubt or skepticism or deconstruction is this idea of, uh, it's almost like I found some termites in one section of this house. Mm. So I'm leaving the house. Right. And it's like, well, why don't you just treat that part of the house? Like you don't have to, like, I, I really appreciate, um, I don't know. Did you, have you read AJ Swoboda's book after doubt? No, it's a good book. And he says this in one part. And I, and I think this picture works really well for this. He says, our theology often exists in our life the way our pipes exist in our home. We give little thought to them, but we rely on them unthinkingly. Too little Mm -hmm. attention is given to them. And then he moves on from there to talk about it like this. There's a world of difference between deconstructing wrong beliefs and deconstructing the faith, just as there's a difference between remodeling a, uh, a room in our home and tearing down the house. Yeah, And I think a lot of times, the hope is like, no, you don't have to leave here in order to explore 
what it means t- for there to be remodeling, reshaping, reformation uh, in your life or in the life of the faith that has been delivered to you. And you don't have to leave the church to do that. And I think the practical component, and then I, I let me land here. I'm sorry. I've been on a diatribe. <laughs> I think the one of the practical ways to do this is to invite people into the very rich, very unified, diverse history of the little C Catholic faith of bringing them all the way back and saying, do you know that Christianity is the most culturally diverse religion in the world? It's transcended languages and people groups across every continent. And it goes way, 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 way back. So do you want to deconstruct? Let's take this thing all the way down to the studs. Let's go yep. back. To, let's go back to the New Testament and from the New Testament, explore the catechisms and creeds of the early church. And let's look at it. Let's leave no stone unturned and let's go all the way back. If you really want to deconstruct, let's go all the way back. Don't, don't deconstruct. And there might be current issues that present themselves as the presenting issue of your doubt. But the way to deal with present issues isn't to only deal with them within a present context. It's to root them in the history of redemption and in the history of Christ's body. And to do that, you have to go back. Yeah. I I think that's, I think that's right. And I'd add to that as I'm sure you would as well, that anytime we're thinking about remodeling, we're not actually looking for a new architectural design. Right. We're looking for the original. Mm-hmm. And if there is a problem with our house right now, which often there is, and there'll be different problems in the house as, you know, in different stages of history and in different cultural contexts, we'll be making, we'll be adding on different stupid additions to this house uh, that then have all sorts of termite rot. I mean, just to sort of take your metaphor and milk it for all it's worth. Mm-hmm. Until we go back to the scriptures and look mm-hmm. at the actual original architectural drawings from there yep. and see the ways in which our greatest hopes and aspirations and desires for, for justice, for diversity, for, for love across difference, for um, recognition, like humble recognition of our own sin, all of those come straight out of the scriptures. Right. And when we have not experienced that in church, it's not because we need to throw out the scriptures and find something better or, or even kind of, yeah, take some from the scriptures, but let's find another source that will add into that. We actually need to go back to the scriptures. And, and I think uh, what's distressing at the moment, as so many are deconstructing their faith, you know, having, having grown up in um, homes and, and communities that have, have at least claimed to be Christian and, and to some extent maybe, maybe have been, is not being able to distinguish between what they have been told in church by, by their leaders, which may be, you know, 75% of it may well be straight up truth from the scripture, 25% of it may just not. Um, whether that's explicit um, teachings or whether it's it's more of a cultural posture that when you when you actually go back and look at the scriptures you think wait a minute this doesn't this doesn't line up mm-hmm. um, and I think alongside that for me when I feel most disappointed in the church either kind of locally or, or writ large going back to the New Testament and seeing some of the first letters written to some of the first churches I've been like goodness me. The Corinthians were a hot mess, you know, like noticing how how actually God's people have been um, marked by both Mm -hmm. great love and pursuit of justice and care for the poor and and all the the beautiful things on the one hand, and actually 
serious sin. Absolutely. You know, from from the get-go that it's not, we shouldn't be surprised. And I, I want to say this carefully because I don't think we should be complacent and like, yeah, yeah, it's, it's expected, so who cares about right. sin in the church? I actually think, you know, <laughs> read the Apostle Paul's letters and you'll see quite how seriously he takes the sin in the church. Mm-hmm. But we shouldn't be surprised by it as if this discredits the church, um, you know, writ large, precisely because, as you were describing at the beginning, the the mosaic of human sinful brokenness yep. that each of us brings in to any gathering, the church kind of locally or or in, in larger denominational settings. But I think yep. we need the scriptures um, to help us see where we're going wrong and how we can put it right. Let me ask you, deconstruction as it's used in the circles that we kind of traffic in right now is really weighted towards like theological destruction, deconstruction or like, or like the deconstruction of, of, of the church or spiritual formation or faith or spiritual experiences. And sometimes I wonder, and I want to get your thoughts on this. I wonder, like, we don't just need theological destruction of wrong belief, deconstruction of wrong beliefs that maybe we've acquired along the way. Mm-hmm. We do, but we that's not it. Don't we also need like a cultural deconstruction? Like some of this is like when we think about our, our entering into a season where we begin to ask questions of our beliefs and the things that have shaped us, it does appear to me that sometimes what will happen is we'll go, I need to deconstruct the beliefs of my faith. But like that, your faith is not the only thing that's made an impact on you. It's not the only thing that's right. shaped you. So it yeah. almost seems like for deconstruction to be to be honest or to be integrated, it, it can't be reserved for merely the realm of faith. I fear that some of the current deconstruction conversation almost has a Gnostic feel to it in that it's like, well, I've been really shaped by the, this kind of Christian upbringing that I had. It's like, yes, but your Christian upbringing didn't happen in a vacuum. It happened in yeah. a wider culture, a wider nexus of stories and practices and formative beliefs and liturgies and catechisms. And um, yeah, you probably do need to think critically about what you have heard from the church um, or what you heard from your parents, if they were people of faith. That That's well and good, but you also need to do that from like everything else, right? Yeah, and I think uh, our guest last time, Lisa Fields, um, pointed to Jesus's interaction with with Peter, where um, Peter says, "You know, Lord, where else are we to go? You have the words of eternal life." As like a, mm-hmm. a key verse for her, as, as when she was at a moment in college of sort of considering deconstructing, having heard some challenging things about the New Testament and the, the Gospels, and and you know, having had some of her confidence. In scripture shaken, then, then realizing a that actually her core beliefs in the authority of scripture lay on far more solid foundation than she'd ever kind of realized um, mm-hmm. from the the study that she'd done up to that point. But b that we're not comparing um, following Jesus to a sort of equally compelling um, life or, or or worldview that is um, you know doesn't have any of these these challenges uh, we're actually uh comparing the the life-giving words of jesus which truly are life-giving even even um though we may have heard them from we we almost certainly have heard them from very imperfect people sure in, in the first instance we, we're comparing that with beliefs that are either sort of uh 
parasitic on Christianity in some sense. Mm-hmm. You know, those of our, our non-Christian friends who who deeply believe in in universal human equality and and rights and um, love across cultural and racial difference, all the all these things that have actually you know come from from the New Testament in the first place, we're not actually you know recognizing that either the alternatives are either sort of parasitical in Christianity and, and lack the firm foundation of the scriptures, or are ultimately nihilistic. Yeah. Um, having us lose our, our not only our belief in God, but actually even our belief in what human beings truly are. Like the yeah. the idea that you or I are kind of coherent moral beings that have a an actual identity and making any kind of authentic moral decisions. If we step out of Christianity, um, and certainly if we step out of out of theism, we find ourselves struggling to hold on even. Yeah. To those beliefs. I think it's it's been curious to me the more I've read of atheists and agnostic thinkers that often if you if you really pursue their lines of thinking, they don't believe in human beings any more than they believe in God. Oh, absolutely. That's um, that's exactly right. And so that's so this sort right of there. I think for for many of us we are imagining a, a kind of promised land of some of our our deepest moral beliefs being being realized and grounded aside from the historic Christian faith. And that promised land is is purely a mirage. Yep. And in actual fact, when we when we come back and look at the scriptures um, uh, and recognize the ways in which our greatest aspirations have actually come to us from there and are most fulfilled in the following of Jesus, hard as it is, yep. th- that's where we'll find the the real oasis. Yeah, you know, I, and, and one of the things to give kind of a silly example and then maybe a serious example of what I'm saying in terms of this, because that's exactly right. Whenever I was thinking through the idea or the question that I asked you, how many people in the last of my, kind of my generation, uh, how many people absorbed, and this isn't like, I'm trying, I'm not trying to do some sort of meta analysis here, but Mm -hmm. the Bible is very clear about how we should speak to one another. Right. It's, it's building up. It's not tearing down. Yeah. How many people have been influenced by the new kind of comedic vein of mm. just like sarcasm as a norm? Yeah. Like I think about like The Office. I remember watching The Office <laughs> and and feeling like, oh, sarcasm is hilarious, right? Yeah. Like I remember watching. You know what I'm saying? And like when you watch it, it is. Um, but like, how many of us are deconstructing the way that cultural artifacts? have influenced the way that we tear each other down in casual conversations. It's like that is shouldn't that be a part of any healthy deconstruction of going like is this really how we want to speak to people? That's more of a silly example. A more serious example is, you know, even when I watch Christians kind of go through these seasons of doubt or I'll see, you know, you know, somebody writing on deconstruction online, I often wonder it it'll be like uh, it'll seem like, wow, you've done a lot of work in considering how the beliefs of the Christian faith wrongly or rightly delivered to you within healthy or unhealthy context, how they've had negative impacts on you. But have you done a commensurate level of introspection Mm -hmm. on how the sexual revolution in the mid-20th century has impacted you, your beliefs, uh, how the systemic injustice that's kind of woven into the fabric of the global West, how that's influenced you. 
or shaped you or formed you because if you haven't, then I don't know that what you're really engaging in is kind of a holistic deconstruction. It seems uniquely targeted to an area where you might want to just you might want to broaden that out a little bit more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's interesting on on the sarcasm point. I think you and I both. This is my strong supposition on the basis of having listened to you interacting <laughs> with Jen and JT and and our experiences together. Both of us, for both of us, um, gently mocking the other person is actually a sign of love. Like there are ways in which you can kind of um, use sarcasm, not cruelly, not to tear somebody down, but actually as a as a sign of, of, of affection and respect. Right. There are also ways that you can speak that are clearly only wanting to diminish the other person. Mm-hmm. And I think... Mm-hmm what we often see online is that second species that you're describing there, which is not a sort of friendly banter, <laughs> but in fact, a, a cruel deconstructing of another person. And that's so clearly not what we're called to. And I think part of what people have a hard mm-hmm. time distinguishing is between, you know, we're often told you, you should respect other people's beliefs. And right. one of my favorite sort of seminary professors um, he was incredibly like kind and gentle himself. He's, he'd say, that's rubbish. We shouldn't respect other people's beliefs. People believe all sorts of stupid things. We should profoundly respect other people. And, and I think we sometimes dis- yep. fail to distinguish between being able to say, actually, I think my, my friend's beliefs are, are, are quite wrong, um, whether Christian or non-Christian. I think they're actually quite wrong on right. this issue. But I'm going to respect them and how I engage with them. And I'm going to show um, what, Peter calls us to in his his first letter where he says, you know, always be ready to give a reason for the hope that you have, but to do so with gentleness and respect. I know we've already yep. talked about that verse on, on this podcast because it seems to me that any kind of biblically faithful apologetics must be marked by gentleness and respect. And so often yep. it's actually marked by completely the opposite, um, meanness and right. disrespect. Yeah, or uh, uh, meanness and disrespect with a very hard-edged truth yeah. motivation or flippancy yeah. with truth in the name of what isn't really a genuine yeah. Yeah. respect at all, which is just kind of a total disregard of the yeah. consequences of ideas. Yeah, and I, just just to, to build on that a second, because as you pointed out earlier, often people who are deconstructing faith-wise have had profoundly painful experiences, you know, whether whether it's their own, you know, immediate personal pain or whether it's the pain of somebody they love very much that's causing them to really reconsider things. And and so I think anytime we are walking alongside somebody who is um talking to us about their their questions or their doubts or or their skepticism, we need to sort of um in a gentle way feel for that pain. Uh, you know, a little bit like you. Yeah. I took my daughter to the the doctor the other day. She's got an allergic reaction to a bee sting, and one of the things the doctor did was, you know, felt around her foot to identify where where the pain really was, because there was swelling in the whole foot. But but where is the bee sting? Where is the where is the original site of the pain? And to make sure that we're attending to that, because if we're only going in to answer people's questions and not to to listen to their story we're not actually going to be meeting them where they most need to be met. Now, conversely, if we only listen to their story and don't actually 
answer their questions. We're not helping them either. At the end of the day, the doctor had to prescribe uh, medication to help with this, not just to sort of feel around for the pain and empathize. But we do need to be doing both of those things. And I yeah. think that's maybe where the gentleness comes in, actually. No, I think you're exactly right. I think you're exactly right. Let me ask you this, Rebecca. Can the church be salvaged? Like, why not Why not just embrace, like, you know, I think a lot of kind of the long tail of deconstruction as we're watching it play out is like, we don't really need the church. Why not just embrace kind of an anti-institutional mm, practice mm. of following Jesus? Like, let's just kind of go over there. We'll kind of do our online community and we'll just kind of have like a, a our own kind of personal faith. Like, why is that not maybe a viable solution? Yeah, it's an interesting way to put the question, can the church be salvaged? Because, of course, the church has been, by definition, has been has been saved uh, more, even more than more than salvaged. And just as Peter said, you know, Lord, where else have we to go? Yeah. I think I would say the same about the church, that it is the place. And when I say the place, I don't mean the, the building. I mean the, the gathered people. Mm-hmm. where according to the scriptures th- that is Jesus's body here on earth today I've been reading rereading some of Paul's sort of metaphors of of the body to describe the church recently and and how he he uses um you know our physical bodies as a as an analogy to say hey, you know, if you're an eye, you wouldn't look at the foot and say, well, I don't need you. Like, that would be really dumb. Um, that we're, we're all part of, part of something um, truly extraordinary in that it is, it is Jesus's physical body here on earth. And so that means not only is it the, the place where we will find wholeness, but it's also the, the, the body within which we will be able to bring healing to the world. And, and, the scriptures do not call us to a merely individual faith in Jesus. They call us to be part of a family, to be part of a body, to be knit together in love, to be brothers and sisters, to be comrades in arms. We cannot, we cannot do Christianity alone. Um, it, it's just, that's not how it's designed. And, and it's not for our good of, or for the good of others if, if we pretend that we can. And, and I think... I see in my own life the the deeply important role that being you know weekly with brothers and sisters um, gathered to sing together, gathered to pray together, gathered to learn from the scriptures together, gathered to like hug each other, gathered to carry each other's kids around, gathered to mourn with each other and you know cancer, gathered to to do those those things that a family should do and then sent out like each week into mission in in the rest of our lives as as we you know partner together to reach non-believing um neighbors and coworkers and 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 friends or to to meet the needs of of those not just within our community but outside our community all of that must spring from the local church actually um and that's where that's where Jesus has called us to to invest and to you know, have as our our home base for his mission in the world. I, I I think this idea of doing that as solo operatives is completely unscriptural and ultimately fruitless. I agree. I love the church, and if you're somebody who is, you know, I think Rebecca and I would both want um, anyone who's listening to this podcast who is in a season of doubt or skepticism or deconstruction, whatever you'd want to call it, to know that 
the Christian life is marked mm. by seasons where that occurs. Jesus invites you as he invites just about all who, who he encounters in his gospel ministry that are going through something like that. He invites you to come near to him, not to run away from him. And he has created the church to be a home, uh, not just for the saint, but for the skeptic. And he invites us into a worshiping community where the quality of our faith is rooted in his faithfulness to us, even when our faith feels very fickle. Uh, and so uh, we hope that that's an encouragement to you. If that's where you're at, we hope it's an encouragement to those of you who are loving, caring for, ministering, truth-telling to people that are in those seasons, and we commend you towards grace with all. You can find Confronting Christianity on Instagram and Twitter. You can leave a review on iTunes, and in your review, if you want to include a question that you want us to explore in a future episode, we'll take those into consideration. If you want to find out just more stuff about what we have going on with the Training the Church podcast network or this podcast specifically, you can go to trainingthechurch.com slash support and find more information there. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. Grace and peace.